3CR broadcasts on the stolen land of the Woiwurrung and the Bunurong peoples of the Eastern Kulin Nation. We pay our respect to their elders, past, present and emerging. And we remember that a treaty was never signed and that sovereignty was never ceded. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. Good morning, Alice. <laughs> Lovely to have you back in the studio. It's great to be back. Lovely. Had a nice break, but it's very good to be here, so I'm happy. So we're live, live with yeah. Alice and live, Patty. Live with Patty and Claudia. How are you today, Patty? I'm very good. I'm very good. I'm looking forward to today's show. It looks like we've got such great interviews. We have. What are you starting off the um, show with? Starting off with an interview with David Wilson, who's the CEO of uh, Deaf Children Australia. And it's the 100-year anniversary of their founder, uh, F.J. Rose. So he, he tells the story of F.J. Rose, who's a very interesting man. And uh, and they've got an event on tomorrow. I think it's online at uh, 10.30. So you find out about that event in a few minutes' time. Cool. And then um, I think both me and Claudio bring in interviews really focusing on the 16 days of activism against gender-based violence. And we're going to start off looking at that by playing something that actually was broadcast yesterday in the Slut Walk um, broadcast. So I tuned into that and it's it was an incredible um, show. So if you haven't, do do go back and check that out. But obviously we're not in lockdown anymore, but protests and organised gatherings are still prohibited and they are being sort of monitored by the police and Facebook and it's being taken down. So Slut Walk was able to maintain and continue their yearly um, protest by 3CR yesterday. And so we're going to be speaking to Amina Khan, or we're not going to be speaking to, we're going to be listening to Amina Khan's speech um, where she looks into the word need and how men use that word to um, to really abuse women and to assault um, women, essentially. That sounds like a great uh, foray into our show because between the two of us I think we've got three uh, live interviews this morning relating to gender um, in society. Alice what have you got for us? So at eight I'm going to be speaking to Diana Saeed who is the CEO of the Australian Muslim Women's Centre for Human Rights and we're going to be speaking about how um, why it was established in the first place and um, some updates as to a new report that they've also put together in 2020 and um, how Muslim women have been affected and potentially will be affected going forward after COVID. Well, I've got two uh, women that I'll be talking to. The first is Dr Jenny Kennedy and she's a research fellow at RMIT University in Melbourne who looks at the gender uh, profile of our artificial intelligence devices in the home. So she's going to be telling us about Siri and Alexa and why they're putting the women's movement back. 
So that's a fascinating discussion. I actually heard her speak last weekend at a word-for-word non-fiction festival. And, uh, yeah, it was just a fascinating discussion. So I'm quite excited um, that she's going to be talking to us. And then at 8.15, we have a live interview from New York. We have Mona El-Tahawi, who's uh, a very vocal social commentator. Some of our listeners may have heard Mona, and she was also speaking um, at the Word for Word Festival last week. She's going to be talking um, about the three Ds, defiance, disobedience and disruption, and why women should be fighting to dismantle the patriarchy. So I'm sure she'll have lots to say, um, and we'll look forward to speaking to her later on. Yeah, so it's safe to say it's going to be jam-packed yeah. and three live interviews yeah. for a Monday morning. Yeah, that's going to wake us up big yeah. time. So brace yourselves, <laughs> <laughs> listeners. And maybe we'll start with a song, Nirvana Nights by Leah Flanagan. <laughs>
was Leah Flanagan with Nirvana Nights and what a tune. Um, next up, we have the CEO of Deaf Children Australia on the show to tell us about their founder, FJ Rose. I, I actually hadn't heard of FJ Rose until last week um, when Deaf Children Australia reached out and they really wanted to tell this story because it's the 100-year anniversary of his death and he's considered quite a hero in the deaf community. So here's David Wilson explaining just who FJ Rose was. He's formerly known as FJ Rose, but his full name is Frederick John Rose, and he's the founder of um, Deaf Children Australia. And we've had a couple of name changes over the time, as you can imagine, since when uh, he first started the school, um, the first deaf school in Victoria in 1860. So he, he came out, he, he's quite an interesting and fascinating fellow. A lot of us feel like quite the underachiever, so... <laughs> <laughs> So he, um, he first, um, he was born in 1831 in Oxford in England and contracted scarlet fever at four and a half years of age. And that left him profoundly deaf. So he attended um, London's renowned Old Kent Road School for the Deaf, where he received an excellent education. So when he came out, he, he came out to, um, uh, when he was 21, with his younger brother, who was uh, Francis, who was 17 in 1852, um, to try his luck at the height of the gold rush, and um, um, he didn't do so well. He'd failed to strike it rich in the Bendigo, in the Bendigo gold fields. And so, but he was trained as a, uh, a carpenter, so he worked in construction in, and using his carpentry and building skills. And, and so he managed to survive uh, then. And, but something changed, um, and he understood also at that point, he was really distressed by the, the fact that there was no... Education for Deaf Children um, in Victoria, and he read a letter that was published in 1859 in the Melbourne Daily called the Argus from a lady called Sarah Ann Lewis advising there was no education available for Melbourne in Melbourne for Deaf children, um, including her eight-year-old, eight-year-old daughter Lucy, who was deaf. So he decided to uh, make it his mission <laughs> to change things. He established the first school, Victoria's first school for deaf children in 1860 in a little old house in Paran, quite humble beginnings. And um, so, and, and uh, as a consequence, um, Lucy Lewis, which is the daughter, the deaf daughter of Sarah Ann Lewis, um, became his first uh, uh, student at the school. Yeah, so, um, yeah, and, you know, look, to, to move on really quickly, he... Um, it grew quite quickly, and he had a couple of um, changes in, in location all around, interestingly, um, around the local area in Melbourne, the inner city of Melbourne, which is um, Paran, Windsor, um, not very far away from where I live, and um, um, very close to the, um, the location of the Bluestone Building, which he ultimately founded. So um, it was during that time that he met um, the Reverend uh, Moss, and they became a real team in um, lobbying to get some funding to actually start the construction of what is now known as the um, the Bluestone Building Deaf Children Australia on the corner of High Street and uh, Finkelder Road. Um, that beautiful neo-Gothic building there, so which we're lucky to be the custodians of. It's just <laughs> an amazing building. Yeah, he's such an interesting character, and it was the first time I heard of him like this week. And it's such a shame that we don't hear more about these really mm. hardworking advocates. Uh, what what were the techniques that he brought to the school? Interestingly, um, 
Auslan, as, as um, we know, Australian Sign Language in Australia, evolved out of British Sign Language. And in Australia, you know, it, 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 it has different dialects around the country. In Victoria, the mode of his education was providing access to communication through a language and using sign language was the, um, the, the way to do this. But he also taught English at the same time. And so, um, interestingly, Ausland, um, it wasn't created by any single hearing or deaf person, but it grew along with the deaf community. And its name was created, uh, the name Ausland was created by, um, uh, as we understand, a fellow called Trevor Johnston in the, in the early 1980s. And it's been used for, used by deaf people for almost 200 years. So, um, and it is strongly related to British Sign Language. So, the mode of education really was. Uh, uh, sign language and English. How the building came together, they built the first half, and I'm not sure if you're, uh, you can sort of picture the building, but it's a, quite an extensive um, um, monument, if you like, <laughs> um, and really imposing and really quite, quite beautiful. Um, uh, the money was uh, raised um, for the first part of it, and it was the, um, yeah, the, the first stones were laid um, in 1866 by the Victorian Governor, Sir Charles Henry Darling. And it was called the Victorian Deaf and Dunn Institute and opened its doors on, in October that year in 1866, which was a really fast build when you compare to what, <laughs> how things go today. Um, less complex, I imagine. But, um, but the rest of the building was fundraised. So he, he, during the time um, of his holidays, he used to travel around extensively throughout rural Victoria um, raising money, and he, he used to take um, some of his senior uh, deaf students with him to raise money, and he managed to um, um, further um, extend the building to what it looks like today. So on um, December 1st, Tuesday, uh, it's actually 100 years since um, mm. F.J. Rose passed away. What, uh, uh, what's changed in the meantime? What, uh, what has deaf children in Australia been doing putting forward F.J. Rose's legacy? One of the many name changes, we became, um, we moved uh, from the name uh, way back, from the name of the Victorian Deaf and Dumb Institution to the Victorian School for Deaf Children. And we um, provided education and welfare for many, many, many years, right up until um, um, 1913 when the state of Victoria took over the actual management of the um, the it became a state school, in effect. So uh, even though we were still called the same name for quite a long period of time, and much later in the, um, the 90s, that, um, that school changed to what is now known as the uh, Victorian School of the Deaf, VCD, and we became um, something else entirely. Um, however, still um, carrying on his legacy as the charity and also um, providing, supporting education and... Um, a whole range of services to do with the welfare and, and care of deaf children, deaf and hard of hearing children. So um, we became Deaf Children Australia. Name changed in um, the early 2000s, and in since, um, and we continue to provide a whole range of of um, services. You know, um, uh, m- m- most importantly, we still provide Auslan tuition. We provide unbiased information and referral services. Advocacy and mentoring. We have uh, quite large mentoring programs, parent mentoring programs. 
So we work from the point of diagnosis and we um, do it primary school, high school and further education and training and right into employment. We have specialist employment services um, that support um, deaf and hard of um, people, young people entering the workforce and a whole range of things like youth and family camps that really provide a lot of um, connection to the, um, uh, amongst deaf and hard of hearing children, their families and the community. That sounds like such important work in the community. Yeah. It's, um, uh, you know, I think FJ Rose would be proud of it. Uh, and and I understand there's a there's a, a video that people can watch if they want to learn more about FJ Rose. Yes, yes, we've got our um, our event at ten thirty on Tuesday morning, the first of December. Um, it only goes for half an hour, so it's um, it's it's we're really excited to launch it. Um, It'll be there as a, a point in history for posterity too on our website. So if people are interested in learning a little bit more, um, they get to hear um, um, from some of our um, uh, older deaf and hard of hearing uh, people who, uh, some of whom lived and boarded at the um, at the Bluestone Building as they were um, they attended school, and uh, some of the newer, younger uh, people who now work for us as Auslan tutors or youth workers. And also you'll hear from some uh, uh, teachers of the deaf as well. So a, a really great cross-section, uh, really articulating his legacy um, as we see it today. And um, quite, quite a, if, I could, if I can just add, it's quite a moving piece And because he had, um, had quite a, an interesting life and we're lucky to have the, um, the Governor of Victoria Linda Desso um, um, giving an address in it, so it's really exciting. So please, I encourage your listeners to register, get in early and register and um, and, and have a look. Uh, what are the details for that? Uh, hop onto our website, which is um, deafchildrenaustralia.org.au, and if you go to the events, you can see there's a registration page there. So that was uh, David Wilson, the CEO of Deaf Children Australia. And, uh, yeah, I encourage anyone who's in- interested in FJ Rose and the work that Deaf Children Australia does to get along to that event. Uh, now, next up, we are going to hear Since I Left You by the Avalanches.
Tune in to Imagining Disability Justice, 3CR's International Day of People with Disability broadcast on 3rd of December. From 7am to 7pm, we're making space for disabled visionaries to discuss the pandemic year that was, abolition and building a better future. For details, visit 3cr.org.au forward slash Disability Day 2020. Sixteen days of action against gender-based violence, November 25 to December 10. In the lead-up to Human Rights Day 2020, 3CR's feminist and gender activists bring you grassroots content demanding change for the annual 16 Days of Activism Against Gender-Based Violence campaign. Visit 3cr.org.au forward slash 16 Days of Action. The media in this country, we as Indigenous people know, have censored our right of telling the truth and the truth is what this country is most fearful of, in particular Indigenous truths. Until history is told by the vanquished lens, which is our people telling our story our way, and have the right to be able to incorporate that into a system of learning, well, people are always going to be denied that truth by deceit and lies. When you look at the type of psychological warfare and spiritual warfare that Aboriginal people are caught in, it's not just in the sense of military when they talk about weapons of mass destruction, but you're right, it's in terms of the media and the industry of media as a warfare against our people, and so is religion, I believe, in the Western sense. They're, they're all weapons of mass destruction against our, our people. We need to keep radical voices on air Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. And um, that was Since I Left You by The Avalanches. And... Um, now we're going to take a listen to a speech that was broadcast yesterday on 3CR on this Slut Walk um, broadcast. So obviously protests can't fill the streets at the moment, but 3CR and Slut Walk teamed up together to ensure that um, even in a pandemic, they won't be silenced by um, with rape and nor will anybody at 3CR, we're broadcasting that. And so this speech is going to be um, by Amina Khan. And so they're a writer, educator, activist, law student and clinical insomniac. Um, So over the last decade, they have been featured across the internet in print with bylines in the Huffington Post, Black Girl Dangerous, Yes Magazine, Everyone is Gay, The Progressive and more. Um, They've also taught workshops on diversity and inclusion in the classroom and served on James Cook University Broderick's Review Working Group aimed at changing campus culture around sexual harassment. And we're going to take a listen to Amana now speaking about the word need. Let's talk about need. This is the most common defence I hear of street and online harassment. I just needed to tell you how pretty you are. Did you though? I want to look at the word need because I think it's very revealing. Men don't think of this as a desire. 
they think of it as a need. In a binarist, cissexist society, men are socialized to view women as repositories of resources, time, energy, affection, love. Whenever they feel lacking in one of these things, when they need affection or regard, they feel entitled to take it from women. Hence the wording, I just needed to tell you. No, you really didn't. There are plenty of things you actually need, like food, shelter, water, and affordable healthcare. And yeah, most humans require affection to be happy, but affection is something earned, not taken. You are not owed affection. You don't deserve affection from random women by virtue of being human and wanting it. That's not how this works. Women are humans too, and they have the same needs as men. Personal safety, bodily autonomy. When you harass a woman, and please know that your unsolicited compliments are harassment, you take away her access to things she needs. A woman's right to those basic needs isn't contingent on what she's wearing or how she acts. She needs those things. You need them too. We all do. I want you to imagine for a moment, men, that you can't walk down the street without women complimenting you. Work with me here. But that would be the best, you're thinking to yourself. Women would finally pay attention to me. Mm, okay. Let's make your fantasy a little more realistic. You don't get to choose which women compliment you. They're not all gorgeous supermodels who want to have your beautiful babies. These women won't wait until it's convenient. They'll compliment you on the train at 2am after a 12-hour shift when you are bone-tired. These women won't just approach you at parties. They'll compliment you when you're running late for an appointment and your car won't start. These women will compliment you when they feel like. Not when you feel like. They will use the crassest possible language. They'll start when you're 14 or 12 or 10, and they'll whisper the things they're imagining doing to you as you sit on the bus, unable to escape until you finally reach your stop. And maybe not even then, if they decide to follow you. These women will compliment the way your sex characteristics look, regardless of whether or not you want sex with them. And the compliments will be incessant, 10, 20, 50 times a day, doesn't matter what you're wearing or doing or saying. Women you would not fuck in a million years will compliment your ass as they drive past, even though you're in your daggiest old shorts. They'll wolf whistle compliments as you walk down dark streets alone after work in the nice clothes you wore to look professional. And as they do it, they'll say it's your fault. You smiled back. You walked past. They had to. They needed to. They needed you. People need food and water and shelter and warmth and fully automated luxury gay space communism. They don't need to be harassers. Nobody needs harassment given or received to survive. You don't need to know how pretty they think you are and they don't need to tell you. Unpack the entitlement around this. You needed to make someone feel unsafe in their own skin. For what? What essential thing did you gain? What need did you fill by doing it? Were you going to die if you didn't do it? Whoa, okay, you backpedal. I didn't need to, but I wanted to. Okay, so? I want a million bucks in Idris Elba. Life is unfair sometimes. If you didn't need to just pay a compliment, why did you do it? Why is your opinion the one that matters here? A woman's existence is not an invitation. She does not exist for you. She's not being beautiful 
at you. Your desire doesn't shape her. She doesn't need your compliments. Probably doesn't even want them. She does not exist for you. So if a woman doesn't need or want your compliments, can you at least be honest and admit that you're sharing your opinion because you want to? And once you admit that, can you ask yourself, truly dig deep and ask why your wanting to share an opinion trumps her need for safety? You want a woman's attention, maybe her validation. She needs to feel safe and free and in control of her own body and life. Weigh these. But I'm not dangerous, you swear, like every man before you. And how are women meant to know that? Do you have a certification or something? I don't look dangerous, you point out, also like every other man before you. Predators often don't. In fact, they're often very well camouflaged. Predators are good at hiding. I can't tell a predator from someone whose compliments are meant innocuously. How would I? There is no way that you, a cisgender heterosexual man, can pay unsolicited compliments to strangers you read as female without it being harassment. You're a stranger. Maybe you just think I'm beautiful, or maybe you're waiting and watching to see where I get off the train and planning your next move. How much do you need or want to compliment me? So much that you don't care how unsafe you've just made the world for me? That much? And that was Amana Khan and um, and their speech from yesterday's Slutwalk broadcast. And now we've got um, Kutcher Edwards with Why. Oh 
She looks at it is gone by. Oh, how it makes her cry. Oh, why? Oh, why? Please tell me why. Do the children cry? Oh, why? Oh, why? Please tell me. have become these gatekeepers to opportunity. They're already deciding who gets hired, who gets health care, how long a prison sentence someone serves. And what I didn't realize is that a lot of these algorithms haven't been vetted for accuracy. We don't even know how accurate they are. They often run on what's popular, and we all know what's popular isn't always good. And they haven't been vetted for racial bias and for gender bias. I had no idea the scope of invasive surveillance, the, the preciseness to which they can predict our behavior, and how vulnerable all of us can be to sort of predatory practices because of these algorithms. And so we need some protections in place as citizens. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Sisters asking many questions. What are these lessons I compressed upon? Now addresses fuels trial prediction guesses. Anyone's best guesses now they got generations seeking mass convalescence. Eucalyptus widow bar, DBS shepherds, totems taken with no conscience or questions. No concept or consciousness of things before the present. Vacuous and empty like the windswept desert. Heroin house under the moon, present in the noon sunrise to change the present. 
over your range, trauma laden. Generations fed up, but the focus to be better and spark on only your weather. Fermented in these strange weathers, some seeming to get stuck in quagmires. Vision torn and severed, but original lines always remembered. Hold together in the now as we hold on to forever more treasures. We always remember, I always remember. Yeah, we always remember, I forevermore. Yeah, we always remember, I always remember. Yeah, we always remember, I. Up, they lost frames, claim divine name change We arrange strange ways, submerged in haze Gray upon halcyon days, house unseen in the maze Destitute ways, left with the loop and skip frames Top conditions, formulated wild renditions Play victims in written cinematic systems But they got it all messed up, land covered in division Wild incisions, a carnage of innocent fixing Why just sit and wait here for a minute Spirit get to floating, up beyond metropolis This river locomotion, hear the Trick release the pain beyond the hocus pocus Open heart release into the soul's love and devotion From eons before to the very present moment I just sit and analyze Reacquaint and scope but I'm still here trying to stay blessed Stand strong and spot Stress is trickled down a horrific conquest Another warrior woman Just trying to get rest on this quest So we close eyes, focus and catch breath Stoking fire, containing ashes from the sacred pile With the life dripping down, create the spirit lock, yes We always remember, I Always remember Yeah, we always remember, I Forevermore, yeah We always remember, I Always remember Yeah, we always remember, I was Always Remember by Dreaming Now. Next we have our live guest, Dr Jenny Kennedy. She's a postdoctoral research fellow at RMIT University and co-author with Yolandi Stringers of The Smart Wife, Why Siri, Alexa and Other Smart Home Devices Need a Feminist re- Reboot. Dr. Jenny Kennedy has been examining the gendered profile of artificial intelligence in our home and she's here to talk to us now. Welcome, Jenny. Hello, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for sharing your time today. Now, talking about feminised digital home devices, what sort of devices are we talking about and what services do they provide in the home? Uh, yeah, so um, the book Yolandi and I have written is looking at the looking at quite a range of technologies that are feminine, either currently um, deployed in the home or anticipated to be incorporated into the home. And we refer to all of these products as the smart wife, which we aim to be very provocative in using. And it's things like your digital voice assistant, like Siri, Google Home, Alexa, 
um, which, all of which came with default female voices and often female names as well. But it goes further than that. We look at um, the types of automated and AI um, <clears throat> devices or um, gynoids that are depicted in science fiction. We look at the role science fiction and popular culture has in basically setting up our expectations of technology when it's given anthropomorphic qualities, um, and especially what happens when those technologies are feminized. And we also go even further and look at what's on the horizon for AI um, technologies in the home by looking at the way in which sex robots are being designed to um, fulfill a whole range of um, uh, services in the home. So, for example, they'll be able to interoperate with your te like temperature control with your speakers, but also provide more um, intimate services and needs as well. So it's a, it's a whole swathe of different technologies, but the basic principles are that they're feminized in some way and that they're designed to do some kind of housekeeping or care work within the home. And you've mentioned the female voice and name of many of these devices. What are the yeah. other attributes that are also feminized? Because it's not just that Alexa or Siri have feminine voices. Uh, there's more than that. Exactly, yeah. Um, it, it's about what the role of these technologies is expected to be. Like we've known for a long time that women are essentially doing what's called a second shift where no matter what kind of, no matter how kind of equivocal the um, work outside the home is in a, like a, a heterosexual couple, when women come home, they tend to do more of the housework, whether or not they do more work outside the home. So there's a, def there's a gap in terms of how housework gets distributed in the home. And the role of these devices, one of the roles of these devices we see is their potential to step into some of that gap, to be able to do some of the care work and some of the labour work in the home, the kind of the keeping track of the social calendar, um, the making everything pleasant and comfortable, very kind of housewifely um, tasks. But they're stepping in in a way that essentially is unburdening men from the expectation of having to step up and do any kind of this housework. They can just slot a device in to do it for them. But as we point out, often these devices bring in their own type of work into the home in order to keep them running and operating. They're not seamless as we would hope. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I heard a conversation um, that Waleed Ali had with your co-author, Yolandi Strangers, about uh, your book and this topic. Yeah. And um, he was raising the question of if the digital devices actually are doing housework, would that not be relieving women of their work? Um, what's your response to that? Well... I mean, there's, there's a couple of perspectives on that. I mean, also speaking about your your previous question, it's not just so it's not just about the feminine. You can change the voice of these devices, but it doesn't change the way in which they interact and the way in which they're programmed. And they may be doing some aspects of 
of that care work. But essentially, you're not able to... There's no voice assistant that you can have look after your child, for example. Like, that there are absolute limitations in what these devices are able to do. They're very much just icing on the cake at the moment in the household. And they're more often used for optimising pleasure in the home than providing some essential and functional need. Um, and it also raises questions about what kind of emotional and care work do we want to delegate to a non-human being? And what do we lose out? What do we gain? But what do we lose out on um, if, if we do delegate certain kinds of emotional work to these? And what conversations aren't having, uh, being had between uh, family members about work and the distribution of labour and how people feel about it when you're pressing a button and um, exactly. outsourcing it so immediately? Yeah, it just diverts that conversation. It doesn't actually solve that issue. So it's more like a distraction from the real issue. Exactly. And then you have, um, rather than someone step up and actually do perhaps, you know, the vacuuming, instead they might spend a couple of hours trying to figure out why the RoboVac won't go into a certain corner of the room. (laughs) So it creates new work in that respect. Um, yeah. The other element I um, was reading about was that the digital devices, they provide services without resistance or resentment or objection. Is mm. this a perpetuation of the trope of the submissive female servant? Absolutely. Yep, absolutely. And this is one of the main bugbears that we have with a lot of the digital voice assistants that are currently on the market is that they are the submissive and subservient and they're feminized and it's the combination of those two that is is really problematic because we wouldn't you know we don't want we shouldn't women shouldn't have to be submissive and subservient within the home so why would we incorporate a device that mimics that and that sets up that expectation and especially in the home environment where already you know the kind of the potential for problematic gender gender and power imbalances um, can be so destructive. And we also have to think about the message to children as well in the home if they're growing up with um, devices that are both feminised and reinforcing those stereotypes, but also, as you say, outsourcing roles that. Um, would otherwise be done by somebody or or spoken about or discussed. Yeah, that's very true. And so Yolandi and I, in our final chapter of our book, we make a number of um, recommendations. Um, We have a number, we have nine proposals, and we call it our manifesto for the reboot of The Smart Wife. And in one of those, we talk about the way in which these devices are currently coded to be passive. And we say, well, what we want, uh, we want them to be more sassy. We want them to push back. Why should a an automated device do what you ask them to do if you shout at them or if you call them a bitch, for example? Why should they act annually? Would we expect, if, if we're going to humanise these devices, then surely we should allow them a more... Um, a more appropriate human-type response to any kind of abuse because we don't want to be perpetuating that kind of, um, those kind of, like, those small sexism attacks within the home. 
Is there any moral obligation on companies designing smart home devices to deliver um, the expectations of a humane, equal society? Yes, I think there is. Yep. Um, I mean, we like there are there's more smart devices are now growing in ubiquity faster than smartphones, and so the the scale of the problem is enormous, and we need big tech to step in and start looking at this issue and appreciating the impact that it is having on informing our expectations and norms around who does what in the home and how people are spoken to or how anyone with a, you know, with a human-sounding voice is spoken to. It's and, a, go on. Oh, I was going to say, yeah, just, um, so, so thinking about you know, how there are some really exciting um, developments um, for chatbots and voice assistants that are more um, progressive and do speak back or refuse to operate if their user is abusive, but sadly not out of any of the major tech companies at the moment. And I think one of the root causes of that is the lack of diversity in the AI industry to begin with. Yeah, I was going to come to that. Um, Professor Kate Crawford talks about a male monoculture within the tech industry, um, with the top t- five tech companies dominated by male engineers from very similar socioeconomic and education backgrounds in con- computer mm-hmm. science. How does that impact who Alexa is and, you know, perhaps equally importantly, who she's designed to serve? Yeah, that's right. Kate says um, tech's got a white guy problem. And you're right, like it's... Um the homogeneity in the tech industry means that there isn't the full diversity of users is not properly recognised and understood nor designed for. So one of the other proposals that we have, and we're not the only ones to recommend this, is that these large corporations are addressing their diversity issues by making sure that within their team they have a better representation of that better represents basically the populations of the users um, of their devices and that they're not just white guys designing for other white guys. That sounds like a really important um, step in in changing things because I believe that um, AI companies also rely on classification systems um, in terms of like their data mapping of images um, to understand consumer profiles and that that can be narrowed because of the people that are doing that programming and analysis. Is that your understanding? I mean, yes. I mean, that's that's a known problem, that there are the biases that are in the data sets that are being used to train train machines and automated systems then end up repeating and perpetuating biases. Um, and I guess that that is parallel to what else to what is happening at the design stage here as well, in that um, the data on users is very much self-informed and therefore um, is not considering how other users are going to encounter and interpret the devices. I mean, there's there's a really interesting conversation that Yolandi and I have um, now been called into around even things like the choice by Amazon to name the device Alexa 
and not thinking about actually how popular a female name that is and how um, cumbersome it can be if you share your name with a device. Not only might it be problematic in the home, but actually quite it's becoming apparent it's quite torturous for some people to find that now they're, they're being bullied because their name is synonymous with a, a device that is designed to do whatever anyone requests it to do. That would be quite and awful. It's that kind of it's that kind of thinking through of the implications of these types of choices that we want. Um, we just want more perspectives on. So, what can consumers do to encourage designs that reflect gender diversity and the equal distribution of domestic labour? Are there actions that we can take um, that will help? Uh, produce better outcomes? I guess, um, I mean, yes. Um, I mean, potentially, I guess, having, thinking about what you're introducing the devices into your home to do and thinking about what purpose they're serving and whose purpose they're serving. I guess um, one of the things that Yolandi and I encounter in our, like we, we both do research on the AI industry, but also we do a lot of field work um, in households talking with people who um, use these types of technologies. And it's often very much driven by one person in the home, the tech enthusiast, who's often male, not always, but often male. So I guess one of the things consumers can do is think about the needs of everybody in the house and make sure the technology is fulfilling all of those needs and that nobody is um, worse off for having the technology in the home. And that also speaks to, um, again, like issues of um, power and um, domestic violence as well because smart home technologies are um, becoming... It's becoming more apparent as they become more adopted how they're being used in domestic violence cases in order to um, coerce and control other people within the home. I mean, think about it. You've got you've basically incorporated microphones and cameras in, into a home that can monitor people at any time. Um, so there's there's thinking about that, and also like you know we we think we're encountering users that are playing with the opportunities of the devices in certain ways, perhaps changing. I mean, changing the voice is a way of at least engaging with the norms of the industry at the moment and questioning them, um, and also just being mindful of the ways in which we interact with the devices. Like I know I'm really careful not to, or I don't yell at, I've got the devices in my home, I don't yell at them. I especially don't do that around my daughter. Yeah, really important to be mindful of the choices we're making buying these things, but also how mm. we use them and how yeah. we talk about them in the home and talk to them, as you've just said. Thank you very much, Jenny Kennedy. That is a really insightful conversation. I'm sure there's a lot of listeners who are going to go away and think very differently uh, when they're using these sorts of um assisted technologies in the home. Um, thank you very much. Thanks for having me on the show. 
Algorithms have become these gatekeepers to opportunity. They're already deciding who gets hired, who gets health care, how long a prison sentence someone serves. And what I didn't realize is that a lot of these algorithms haven't been vetted for accuracy. We don't even know how accurate they are. They often run on what's popular, and we all know what's popular isn't always good. And they haven't been vetted for racial bias and for gender bias. I had no idea the scope of invasive surveillance, the, the preciseness to which they can predict our behavior, and how vulnerable all of us can be to sort of predatory practices because of these algorithms. And so we need some protections in place as citizens. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. And that was a fantastic interview by Claudia just then. And now we have another hugely important conversation in our show as we focus on 16 days of action against gender-based violence. And our next guest is Deanna Saeed. Deanna is an international human rights lawyer and CEO of the Australian Muslim Women's Centre for Human Rights. Deanna, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank Good you, Good morning. Alan. No worries. Um, I just thought we'd start by really, if you could tell us a little bit more about why the Australian Muslim Women's Centre for Human Rights was established back in 1991. Yeah, so it was a organisation that sort of started out by a group of women who decided that they needed to be a much more specific, culturally aware, trauma-informed very client-centred around uh, providing housing support for Muslim women who are experiencing family and domestic violence. So they created an organisation that was uh, very specifically tailored to addressing the needs for housing for women who needed to leave um, perpetrators and their families and felt that that was like a really missing, was missing within the sort of space for women back in 1991 and since then we've evolved over the last 30 years to becoming a much more sort of program service delivery organisation that does very specifically targeted casework for Muslim women and then we do a lot of research, policy and advocacy now. So yeah, we've been on a journey the last 30 years. Wow. And and why is culturally appropriate services, especially for domestic and gender violence victim survivors, so important? Well, where do I start? Yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, we represent and we work alongside, you know, over 170 different ethno-cultural, uh, you know, different um, Muslim women and the diversity within their community is so expansive. And I think that's what's often missing when we talk about the Muslim community or Muslim women is that there doesn't seem to be an acknowledgement of how different and how diverse and how um, there, there is a range of ways that um, women uh, identify with religion and culture and just we're not a monolith and that narrative is quite reductive. So for us, it's really the, the one of our key values is that we are a non-religious, not, um, 
and secular organisation, but we really use the human rights framework and we believe that Muslim women are the key drivers of change and to self-determine their own lives. And so because we are an all-Muslim women organisation driving change in the community, in our own communities, therein lies our power to drive that change because we come from the very same communities that we are serving alongside. So the complexities of the, um, the issues we already are aware of. We have that culturally specific lens we are already ourselves um, across a lot of the trauma that our clients face on a day-to-day basis, particularly with those that are from migrant and refugee backgrounds who have been forcibly displaced, who have had multiple and differing migration journeys to Australia, and also in the sort of political climate that, you know, we are all collectively, you know, battling patriarchy, we also understand that internally within our own community there are different ways that patriarchy plays out. And so we have a we sort of have a lens of understanding and deep rooted knowledge about that. And so there's no judgment when Muslim women come to Muslim women talking about the complexities of how patriarchy plays out in their homes and gender inequality, which we know are the key drivers behind domestic and family violence and it has touch points across all communities and there's no prevalence greater or or more so um, in any of our communities. It's just that we understand how it presents uniquely within our own communities. Mm. And in 2020, um, the Australian Muslim Women's Centre for Human Rights put an incredibly important report together about how to support Muslim families and children experiencing Islamophobia in Australia today. And one part of the report focused on Muslim women and reported that there was a significant, there's significant evidence suggesting that Muslim women are more susceptible to Islamophobic attacks due to their visibility with Islamic clothing. Um, I just wondered if you could talk to us a little bit more about that and also the social and psychological impact this has on the women targeted. Yeah, absolutely. So in essence, the report, um, and we're very much grounded in evidence and, and commission and work alongside university and academic institutions in Australia. The report really um, came off the bat of how post 9-11 there's been a lot of, you know, as we know, the political context has been very much um, about an increasing enabling environment around growing Islamophobia uh, in Australia and abroad and the soft targets of a lot of Islamophobia on our streets, on our public transport, in shopping centres, in workplaces, in any any spaces really have been Muslim women. They have been disproportionately targeted because they are a visible soft target for people's um, hate speech, for vilification and often even Muslim women who are at shopping centres with their children are not safe from having sort of vitriolic attacks addressed at them. So this report really goes into that detail around sort of those those issues that present and how Muslim women um, are targeted. It also sort of has a bit more about how to support Muslim women and parents when their children experience um, Islamophobia in schools. So a lot of that is based on, you know, how when Muslim women and families and communities are in Australia, 
you know, we tend to, you know, there's a lot of narrative around bullying in schools and how to say no and how to step up and, and you know, talk to teachers and larger communities about step, standing it out and, and um, calling it out. But there's not enough support and, and um, provided to Muslim families and parents about how to have those conversations with their children. And it's really hard for parents because it's obviously triggering for them as well because they also experience Islamophobia in schools and when they go workplaces themselves. And so it's often easier for them to minimise it, to down, downplay it, to sort of just dismiss it and, you know, try and um, not have those conversations with their children because it's quite triggering for them as well because, as we know, Islamophobia and that trauma is intergenerational now. And so what we have found is that, obviously, the long-term psychological impacts of Islamophobia on Muslim women, to their children, whole families, whole of communities can be very isolating. And it leads to feelings of, of marginalisation. And we know that people sort of feel less... In, it's not. It leads to less feelings of, um, you know... That feeling of isolation and not feeling included or accepted um, does sort of um, erode people's willing to mm. engage in mainstream society and it erodes your confidence and your willingness. And, um, you know, it, it does lead to lower sort of socioeconomic impacts. People are less willing um, to engage in mainstream society, whether that's through pathways to employment, um, education. And so they, they have very real impacts on people's mental and psycho and psychosocial um, abilities to engage. Mm. And when Muslim women um, or the Muslim community as a whole experience either um, domestic violence or Islamophobia and any, any type of abuse, do they tend to look to the community for support and or do they head to the police? Do they make a report? I mean, how do they often look to heal from, from abuse? Yeah, well, we know sort of both anecdotally and from our research that it is notoriously underreported mm. because, you know, over the years there's been a bit of a loss of trust in um, government authorities and agencies from will a real willingness to address it and stamp it out. So often it just goes underreported. Um, people have also internalised a lot of this. Um, hate speech and it does internalise Islamophobia as well where people just have come to sort of normalise it as well and that comes from the very top echelons of our political establishment as well where often, you know, during election years it's sort of green-lighted, um, you know, people from with differing views, you know, there's this whole mentality that there's a right to be a bigot in this country mm. and people from those communities are often platformed over us and our humanity has slowly, slowly um, been eroded and dehumanised over the last decade since 9-11 and the war on terror. So we have often, um, you know, there's a lot of language that excuses away very harmful hate speech and behaviours. So I do I do often worry um, about the underreporting because we don't have an accurate um, read on how prevalent, um, you know, casualised hate speech towards Muslims is in our community. So that's sort of the first, um, point there. The media has been both um, good and bad in terms of, um, you know, when there are big moments around um, Christchurch, 
what we've seen, you know, in the last week with the Afghan war crimes report, with the um, Australian soldiers abroad. You know, there are key moments like that where it does elicit, you know, some level of, of sympathy towards Muslim communities. But for for the by and large, um, a lot of other times, you know, this the slow, casual normalization of our dehumanization is where I deeply have issues with and I worry about how Muslim children in schools are treated, how they're teased and bullied, how it leads to, you know, it's casual casualized um, hate speech in, in workplaces around bullying, particularly for Muslim women who are already quite vulnerable um, in those spaces. So, yeah, mm. I, I do worry that they don't report it to police because obviously there's there's a bit of a trust deficit with the authority as well. In a, in a, you know, our communities have been surveilled quite extensively um, during the pandemic as well. There's been, you know, this heavy-handed approach to policing yeah. and policing our way out of the pandemic. So, um, you know, I do worry that even, you know, in a family domestic violence situation, we know that um, it's underreported, but in our communities particularly so because of this trust deficit that exists with police, not necessarily um, wanting to engage with them because our communities are already heavily racialized, racially profiled, and Islamophobia runs deep within all of our institutions. Mm. Thank you so much, Deanna. Um, I have heaps more questions for you, but we've just come to the end of the, that segment. So I'd love to invite you back onto the show and to speak more about um, how Muslim women are going to be hopefully recovering well from the pandemic and if they're included in that roadmap to recovery. Um, so I'd love to have you back on to speak a little bit more about that. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Alice. Thank and you. Of course, I'd love to be back. Lovely. Well, we'll speak to you soon then. And that was Deanna Saeed, international human rights lawyer and CEO of the Australian Muslim Women's Centre for Human Rights. Okay, we're back in the studio with our next interviewee. We have Mona El-Tahawi speaking to us from New York. And uh, a warning to listeners that uh, our next guest uh, will be trying very hard at this hour of the morning um, not to drop an F-bomb, but she's uh, known for uh, using expletives um, and we acknowledge that swearing is a form of resistance and expression. Uh, so we apologise in advance if that happens and hope you'll keep listening to this important discussion. Mona el is an Egyptian-American social commentator, journalist and feminist activist who calls for women to fight back and dismantle the global patriarchy. She advocates the use of the three Ds, defiance, disobedience and disruption. She's the author of two books, Headscarfs and Hymens, Why the Middle East Needs a Sexual Revolution and The Seven Necessary Sins for Women and Girls. In 2012, 
Mona was named one of Newsweek magazine's 150 fearless women who shake the world. She's here talking to us live from New York. Welcome, Mona. Hello. Good morning to everyone in Australia. And good afternoon to you in uh, New York. We're going to hop straight into the interview because uh, we want to make the most of our time with you. So can you start us off by explaining to us, you talk about the trifecta of misogyny, the state, the street and the home. What does this mean? Um, I came up with this phrase, the trifecta of misogyny, because I found it really useful to show that um, it's not just the state that has power over us. And um, especially when we're talking about revolutions and resistance, I find that um, when I'm saying that feminism has to be at the core of every revolutionary movement, a lot of cisgender men will say to me, well, yeah, yeah, we'll get there. But, you know, we've got to fight the state as if the state is the only source of patriarchal oppression. And so I'll often respond to those cisgender, often heterosexual men as well. And um, I will say to them, look, I know that the state oppresses everyone, men and women. But you have to be aware that the state, together with the street, which is, you know, public space and work and the home, together they form this trifecta of misogyny and together they all oppress women. And so I find that a very useful way to push back against this idea that we have to wait. And the only group that benefits from waiting is basically um, white, cisgender, heterosexual, able-bodied, wealthy, often conservative men. Because for them, they just want to fight the state for a portion of power. And once they get that portion of power, they think that everything is going to be solved. And that doesn't take into account capitalism and ableism and classism and the misogyny that both that all the state, the street and the home together squeeze the rest of us using. We'll come back to talk about men a bit later in the um, segment. I wanted to ask you about your global observation of the women's movement. You've said that women's rights are in grave danger. Is that something you observe throughout the world or in particular um, hotspots? Well, I think especially now with the global pandemic, um, I often say, and I promise this is going to be the only F-bomb I drop Australia, (laughs) the pandemic is a fucking disaster for women and girls around the world. And I use that word especially, and I appreciate your introduction. Thank you. Because for me, swearing is a way to shock people into the kind of waking up we need and into... um, making clear the kind of resistance and just pushing aside any politeness about this. This global pandemic really is a disaster. Every NGO, the United Nations, you know, every group that monitors the social changes that are happening as we speak has made it very clear that what little progress women and girls have made around the world is in grave danger because of the pandemic. Now, I listened to your previous interview with Diana Sayed, and she's absolutely right about women and the dangers. So she was talking specifically about Muslim women in Australia. Mm. And I would expand that then to, to emphasize just what a dangerous moment this is. So this is absolutely crucial 
that we pay attention to increasing levels of intimate partner violence, increasing levels that, of violence that women, girls and queer people are subjected to during lockdown, and saying that, but also reminding people that there is feminist resistance that is happening around the world. Now, I'm a tenacious optimist when it comes to fighting back, which is why I believe in the three Ds that you mentioned, defy, disobey, and disrupt. And in order to really crystallize the kind of the importance of this moment, I launched my newsletter, Feminist Giant Newsletter. It's free and it's accessible to everyone as a way of basically documenting the feminist resistance that is happening around the world, be it in Mexico or Thailand or Poland or Egypt. Around the world, women are rising up because they recognize that this pandemic is gravely endangering our rights across the world. Do you have any observations of what's happening in Australia compared to what you observe elsewhere in the world? I know you've travelled here a few times. Well, I think, you know, um, I was in Australia almost exactly a year ago, you know, during that now infamous episode of the Q&A. <laughs> yes. That was proof of the of iView, you know. And, you know, I want to remind your listeners that one of the reasons that that episode was pulled off the air was, yes, that I used the F word 10 times and that I said, you know, something that I make very clear in my book, that when I ask something like, um, how many rapists must we kill before men stop raping women? How long must we wait uh, um, before men and boys stop murdering and beating us? It, this, this, the fact that a brown woman of Muslim descent was asking these necessary and very difficult questions of Australia, asking them of white men in Australia, was so disturbing that these same white men you complained in, in their, I don't know how many numbers, but successfully managed to pull a TV episode off the air in this democracy, ostensible democracy called Australia. So that says to me that in a country where at least one woman is murdered every week by a partner or an ex-partner, it is more dangerous to ask about theoretical violence against men than it is to talk about actual violence against women. So that says to me that feminism and women's safety in Australia are in dire danger. So I, well, and I think that part of that is that feminism in Australia is still very, very um, um, white, a very white form of feminism that does not take into account um, the various other oppressions that women are subjected to, and that does not take into account that it's not just misogyny. So my message to my feminist comrades and friends in Australia is that you must take this pandemic as an opportunity to fight back against white supremacist patriarchy. Because whether it's your prime minister, Scott Morrison, or um, uh, others in your parliament who are very, who, who basically push this white supremacist, very capitalist line, you are not going to make it through this pandemic without serious damage to feminism in Australia. And that's why I believe that you have to listen to indigenous women more. You have to listen to refugees. You have to listen to the poor. You have to listen to the disabled. And you have to decenter white voices from the discussion on feminism in Australia. Yeah, I wanted to talk to you about intersectionality. Um, do you feel that it's 
being sufficiently recognised. Um, you've obviously said in Australia you don't feel that's the case. What about in the States? Is that becoming more um, accepted in terms of talking about gender violence? Um, I think very slowly and reluctantly in the U.S. it is being recognised um, and, and intersectionality is being taken in, in the serious way that it, that it should. And it's taken a long time to get here. I think when I compare the U.S. to Australia, I think thanks to the work of, you know, we're, we're in a year right now where the Black Lives Matter movement basically inspired and um, initiated a, a, an incredible revolution against anti-blackness and against white supremacy. And it continues, obviously, because we have a long way to go. But I think that has forced um, this reckoning, a long overdue reckoning, with white and with neoliberal feminism. It's by no means over. And as a reminder of how much longer we have to go, uh, Donald Trump is the biggest reminder of that. And the fact that the majority of white women voters voted for Donald Trump and the majority of white women voters in the United States consistently vote for the Republican Party, a white supremacist, anti-misogynist, and bigoted party that is very similar in its policies to your conservative party in Australia, and so, or, or the party of Scott Morrison. And in the United States, another reminder came when Donald Trump successfully nominated to the Supreme Court, uh, basically, a, a Roman Catholic zealot called Amy Coney Barrett, who is the antithesis of feminism. And she is now on the Supreme Court. And as a reminder of the danger that she represents, she was one of the deciding votes on um, a motion recently in the Supreme Court that overruled um, a case in New York where the, the New York State effectively said, look, places of worship have to uh, abide by rules for COVID to, to fight the pandemic. And the Supreme Court, thanks to Amy Coney Barrett's vote and the conservatives on the vote uh, on the court, said no places of worship should be exempt from this rule. So I think the United States has been basically kicked, dragging and screaming into the recognition of how dangerous white feminism and how dangerous um, the, uh, ignoring intersectionality is. And I hope that Australia will learn of, um, of that if the longer you ignore intersectionality the harder it will be for everybody, including white women, because my message to white women is they think their whiteness will protect them from patriarchy, and their whiteness gives them proximity to the power of white men. But nothing will protect you from patriarchy, and you should not allow your whiteness to trump your gender. Do you um, think that Kamala Harris becoming the vice president of the USA and being the first black Indian American woman to take that uh, position uh, will make a difference to the status quo in the United States when it comes to women's rights? Well, I think what, what Kamala Harris does is she presents a very similar um, dynamic to that of seeing Amy Coney Barrett being elevated, seeing Gina Haspel being elevated to head the CIA. But now we have not just the first woman but we also have a woman who is black and Indian, as you said. So as a feminist, I always remind people when I'm talking about women and power that I'm not interested in the elevation of women just for the sake of women. My question always is, is this a woman who upholds patriarchy or who dismantles patriarchy? So Kamala Harris complicates that question even more. Because while I celebrate the elevation 
of groups and identities that have, have, have traditionally been exempt from power. So I celebrate that it's the first black and Indian woman who is vice president. It's not enough to be the first or to be historic. It's not enough. Because if it were just that, just being a woman or just being black or just being Indian, that would be an incredibly, incredibly naive way of approaching power. So I celebrate that she is the first black and Indian vice president, uh, woman as vice president. But I continue the sentence and say that I also critique her policies and her history as the former attorney general in California and as a senator in the U.S. Congress. Because sex workers and trans people in the U.S. have all come out and critiqued Kamala Harris's record when she was the attorney general in, um, of California, and also abolitionists, people who want to abolish the police and who want to abolish the prison industrial complex. They have all critiqued Kamala Harris's record. So again, while I celebrate that she is the first and she has broken a record, it is not enough to just celebrate that we have a woman who is also black and Indian. We must also critique her record, and we must basically continue to critique her record. And for me, I will be following closely. Is she going to uphold the patriarchy, or is she going to dismantle the patriarchy? We'll watch that space with you. Um, we need actions, not just words, but uh, role models are a good good start. Um, thank you so much for joining us this morning. I'm sorry we can't talk longer, but our show is about to finish up for today. So thank you, Mona El-Tahawi, for joining us. And I think that's it for Monday Breakfast this week. So we'll see you all next week. Thank you for listening and thank you to all our guests.